my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm talking with retired battalion chief Rick Segrist. He's started his career with the Union Park uh, Fire District back in 1980, is that correct? 1981. 1981. Um, just prior to consolidation, all the different fire districts in Orange County, Florida, um, well, most of them consolidated uh, to form the Orange County uh, Fire Rescue Department. Um, so you were there in the beginning and you served 35 years working your way up through the ranks, uh, retiring as a very well-respected chief officer. And now, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but now you were still involved with the fire service by providing job-specific exercise equipment. It's, you know, train like you operate and exercise your body for those occupational specific movements. And um, yeah, you were the uh, chief of safety and wellness for, for quite some time. Your knowledge surrounding the, the safety and wellness of firefighters is uh, second to none. So um, before we get into all of that, I, I would like, you know, I know quite a bit about you just because we've known each other for so long, but your story is very interesting to me and I think it'll be pretty interesting and, and well, I think it'll show a progression and just how um, people develop through their, their life and I, just, I don't know, I've got a great deal of respect for you and why don't we, why don't we start off with talking about your, your family life growing up, where you grew up at, and then maybe what led you into the fire service. All right. Well, I grew up um, in central Florida down by the, uh, or, or the, it was a Navy base at the time I was growing up. Now it's known as Baldwin Park. You probably know that area. Um, and it was a neighborhood full of blue collar families. Uh, my dad was a uh, iron worker, welder, mechanic, boiler mechanic. And uh, my mom never worked, you know, she was a stay at home mom. And um, it was a great place to, to grow up because there's a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And back then we could ride a bike everywhere. And Highway 50 was a two lane road. Um, 436, I don't think was even in existence. Um, it was just a neat place to go. And, you know, we could on the corner where I lived, there was a McDonald's with the actual golden arches before you could sit inside. 
and we'd go down there and we, you know, beg for the old French fries and orange sodas. And, you know, we'd build forts in the woods. Uh, it was just, a, it was just a great place to grow up. And then we moved out of that environment over to Goldenrod Road before it got developed. And my dad wanted some acreage with some horses. So we, we did that. And then where I really started growing up, I guess, was um, out in Geneva, Florida, if you're familiar with that area. So my dad loved acreage. He loved animals. He loved horses. He, we, he raised all kinds of animals, goats, pigs, chickens, guineas, pheasants, you name it. He did it. Um, so, you know, I went to Oviedo High School when it was a brand new high school. And before Oviedo was actually the metropolis that it is now. And, you know, of course, for somebody like me that's seen it when it was small, it's sad to see it get like that. And actually, I moved out of that area um, about four or five years ago and because it was just getting so busy. It was crazy. It was taking me 30 minutes to get to a place that it should have took me five or 10 minutes. So but I still love the area. I still love that area. And I visit it sometimes. So that's where that's where we were raised. So I'm a Florida boy. Yeah. And I know that... Uh... You had some family that lived in South Florida, Jupiter, correct? Yeah, my grandfather lived in Jupiter, Florida, um, which is where my my parents dumped my parents and my aunt and uncle dumped me and my cousin every summer because I couldn't stand us being home all summer because we drive them crazy. So we go down to Jupiter, Florida, and again that was before it was developed. We had little or no supervision. My grandfather and grandmother would let us take the little Boston Whaler out, and we'd almost get pulled out to sea all the time and we didn't tell anybody we'd come back and then they take us down to the beach and dump us off at the beach all day and we'd come home they'd feed us they'd clean us they'd put us to bed um, so you really learned you know basically how to be how to supervise yourself in, in that kind of environment and you know if you look at it around all those pieces of water it could be considered quite dangerous and they'd probably go to jail in this day and time if they if they knew what they did with our with us but it was a great environment learned a lot of good stuff. It's, it's kind of cool reminiscing with you. Um, you know, I had family that lived in Jupiter and um, I want to say that you told me your grandfather uh, had his homestead right there near Dubois Park, right? Not quite sure if I said that, cause I don't know what that is, but I will tell you it was right on the inlet. It was uh, probably less than 50 yards to, to where you're down the inlet you could see the lighthouse i mean it was it was a little florida home it was it was i mean if i had it now i'd probably be very very rich <laughs> because that's when they started building the um all the condominiums and stuff around there so but man so you know what a what an incredible beautiful area that is do you have any siblings well it's a funny story um, I was an only child until my dad got killed on a job after soon afterwards, I got a letter. Well, I got as actually one of the ladies from headquarters called me. And at that time I was at station 80 and I didn't know anybody at headquarters and you know how it is. Nobody wants to go to headquarters unless you have to be there. And she called me up and she said, Hey, do you have relatives in Georgia? And I'm like, Nope. And she goes, well, that's weird. And I said, okay. And she goes, well, there's a letter here. Can you come to headquarters and pick it up? And I'm like, nope. And I said, you can send it to me. And she goes, well, we'd really like you to come pick it up. I said, well, unless the chief orders me to come there, ma'am, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm going to have to de decline because I don't want to come to headquarters. 
So anyway, long story short, they sent me the letter. I, I remember sitting on my bunk that night and I opened the letter up and it went, started out with uh, Dear Rick, Our Father. And I'm like, what? So anyway, found out I had two sisters from my dad had another marriage and apparently he told him, you know, don't contact, don't contact your brother. I don't want him to know anything about it. So now I know how I got that trait. <laughs> so I guess he, you know, had some skeletons in this closet, but uh, yeah, uh, we tried to reunite, but you know, I was too far gone into not having any family members. So it just didn't work out for me. And my other sister felt the same way. That, that's the first time you've told me that story. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 It, it, it was kind of funny. I mean, I, I think what the ladies wanted to do was, you know, they wanted to meet me and, you know, because it was intriguing to them. My first wife, she decided that she was going to, I didn't know what was going to happen. She, she invited me to go to a popka at a little uh, barbecue restaurant out there. And, you know, she said, come see the girls. The girls want to see you. So I said, okay. So I met, I planned to meet them out there for lunch. But when I walked in, it's a small restaurant. And I was walking in and everybody's head kept turning to greet me. And I'm like, wow, I must be pretty hot stuff. Look at all these people. I'm walking down. I'm like a celebrity in here for some reason. So when I sat down, next thing I know, this other lady comes in and sits down next to me. And it was, you know, my, my uh, ex-wife's way of reuniting me with my sisters. So I, I, everybody in the restaurant knew that, so, except for me. So it was quite shocking to say the least. When you were growing up, I, I know you to be very athletic, very fit, and I would imagine that that's been kind of a lifelong thing. What, uh, what kind of sports did you play growing up? Well, you know, like the, the atmosphere I lived in, in that little area I told you about, everybody was athletic because all you did was ride and run and, and fight when I say fight, you know, we were kids, but you know how that is, but you know, you're always trying to gain dominance. You're watching Tarzan. So you're building forts and trees and you're swinging from limbs and stuff. And for some reason, I always was the fastest and I was always the strongest, but I was always the smallest throughout growing up. I played a lot of different sports, football, anything with a ball running, all kinds of things. But, but I, my father, worked and was out of town a lot and he wasn't into sports he was into working and not playing so I never was any into any you know kind of sports in school and stuff until I got older into high school and then I tried my hand at football but in high school I was 135 pounds five foot eight believe it or not same height I am now just a little lighter um, and since I was so fast, they put me at running back and never playing football before in pads, you know how that probably ended up. So, you know, I'm like, this isn't for me, but the coach knew I was fast. So he put me on the track team. Um, and I was the sprinter. So, and we were lucky enough to go to the States and we did real well in States and stuff. And, uh, I got some offers to some small schools up in North or South Carolina in my dad's way. He's like, um, how are you going to pay for that? And I'm like, well, it's a scholarship dad. I, I don't have to pay for it. He goes, Nothing's for free, son. He goes, you got to eat. You got to live someplace. How are you going to pay for it? I said, well, dad, you know, I don't know, but it's a scholarship to go to school for free. He goes, what's the point of going to school? And the point of going to school to get a job? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I got a job for you as soon as you get out of high school, right here at the, at the boiler company. And that's what happened. <laughs> so, 
So, um, but yeah, I played a, a ton of, uh, you know, sports, um, volleyball, football. I used to play beach volleyball at five foot eight, believe it or not, very competitive, um, in some leagues with big Mike Kelly. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah. He was my partner. We did real well in different tournaments and stuff like that. And then I was very active in, you know, in the beginning, I didn't really want to be, but because I was fast and strong, um, they taught me into going and competing in the firefighter Olympics, which, you know, not brag, but I got lots and lots of hardware from those, those days of running and, and stuff. So, yeah, you know, I've, I, it's just something I've done my whole life and enjoyed it. And what I try to tell my son and other young people is don't let it go till it has to, because if you have a natural gift, you don't really appreciate it. And then once it's gone, it's like, why can't I run anymore? This is, this is weird. So, <laughs> What led you into the fire service? Uh, you know, I don't know if you're going to want to put this on your podcast or not, because it's not a really great reason. Um, when I first, when I, me and my buddies first got out of high school, they landed a job with uh, Seminole County Fire Department. Way, and that, this was, like I said, back in the, um, I, got, I graduated in 1974. So it was the mid seventies and they're like, Hey, Rick, you got to come work here, man. This is awesome. We, you know, we get to come to work and we, we mess around and then we go to sleep at night and then we have two days off and every day is a Friday. And I'm like, what do you mean every day is a Friday? Well, you work one day, you got two days off. I'm like, Oh man, that sounds awesome. I go, what, what, what do I have to do? Well, just, you know, we, we'll give you a reference. And I said, well, I I said, and, you know, I used to drive over here to New Smyrna Beach to go surfing all the time when I was a kid. And how some people, when they see an axe on the side of the road, they're goosenecking and they're sticking their head out. Well, I was covering my eyes because I hated the sight of blood. It made me nauseous. So I said, you have to deal with any, like, bloody stuff. Oh, yeah, all the time. It's great, man. You know, people are slurred on the road and we go and blah. And I'm like, I'm out. And I'd work, Dave. I mean, there's so many. I don't have enough time to tell you how many jobs I've had. but most of the jobs I've had before the fire service were hard. You know, like I said, my dad pulled me into the, um, my uncle owned a company called Mid Florida Boiler. My dad was a foreman for it. It was heavy, hard, nasty work. And when I went to work there because I was his son and had real long hair because of the surfer, he introduced me to everybody as his daughter. And he made me work harder than anybody there <laughs> because I was his son. And he, they put me in, you know, right again, they would go to jail for this now, but they put me in these big boilers with a wire brush and tell me to clean the tubes with no mask, nothing, just go in there. You're knocking off slag with, with no eye protection. You know, you get stuff in your eye all the time, metal in your eye all the time. So I, and I always had those kind of jobs and I'd work as a plumber and I'd be digging these huge trenches, which were over my head. And I always thought, my gosh, man. The, the only thing I work for is like Friday so I can go out and party and, you know, have the weekend off. And I kept thinking to myself, man, those guys, well, they were right. It'd be nice to have a job. So as fate will have it, I, looked, I was looking at paper because I was always looking for some other job, something better. Back then, we didn't have computers. We had newspapers. So we look in the, uh, I guess I have to say that, the help wanted ads. And, you know, I saw this job for a firefighter. I'm like, I'm going to go apply. And I don't want to say the fire department's name because I don't want to make them sound like they were backwards or anything. But when I got there, 
I didn't know anything about firefighting. I had no family members, nothing except for my buddies who I hadn't seen in a few years. And I went into this big, gigantic, it looked like a big, you know, garage. They took my name and stuff. And there was a table with, I think, three people behind the table in chairs. And then there was a chair in the middle of the, the bay. And they started firing off questions. I was answering the questions. And this is the one question I always remember and I always tell people about. So they said, so if, uh, if the chief came in and threw a quarter on the floor and told you to get down on your hands and knees and push it around the bay with your, with your nose, would you do it? And I'm like, oh man, this is a rough one. The other ones weren't that bad. I said, uh, no. They go, what? I go, well, I said, you know, my dad raised me pretty hard. I said, if he found out that some man threw a quarter on the floor and I was pushing around my nose to give everybody else, you know, entertainment, I said, I, I, I couldn't go home without a beating. And I said, you don't know my dad, but you don't want to take a beating from him. And uh, they started laughing. I said, I said, I think I know what you mean. Like he's chief, he knows more than I do and I should listen to him. And if I go into a fire, sir, I'll do whatever they tell me to do. I don't care what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll follow those instructions, but I can't do that. I'm, and I'm not going to lie to you. And they laughed. I said, you're the first one to answer that question correctly. They go, we want to hire you, but you have to go to this saying, it's, it's kind of new. It's called minimum standards. We just started it, but the chief wants the new people to go through that. So go down to uh, Seminole and sign up for it. So I did. So then I had to go tell my dad that uh, I couldn't work on the weekends anymore and I couldn't go out of town because I had to be in school two, I think it was three nights a week and on Saturday. And he's like, okay, let's see how that works out for you. So I started and I really liked it, Dave. I mean, because just being in that team environment and everything was physical and standards class. I mean, back then, the first thing we got to do, like the after the, the first Saturday, and I didn't know this then, but I found out they were just trying to get rid of people. The first thing we did was repel. I wasn't really scared of heights. So, and we didn't repel with fancy harnesses. They made us do like, it's called a Swiss rope, I think, where you have to make your own harness out of a rope, which, you know, I wasn't real good at that. So I was sliding that on my rope going down to, um, upside down the first time, I guess. But that was fun. I enjoyed that. Then the second Saturday, and I don't think they do this anymore. I'm pretty sure they don't. We jumped off the top of the, the building, like three or four stories into this bag, which I thought was going to be really cool. And I couldn't wait to do it. And the bag looked huge on the ground. But when we got up to the top, it looked like a Tic Tac. And I'm like, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't look as fun as I thought it was going to look. And the first guy didn't help things because he was, there's always that guy in class who wants to be first at everything. He said, I want to be first. So they let him and he froze up and he was there for like 45 minutes until they finally told him, you got to jump or you're, you're out of the program. So he jumped straight up. You're supposed to like, just kind of go into a seated position, fall in a seated position. So you fall in your butt in the middle. He jumped straight down and you got to go three times after the third time they took him to the hospital because he jammed his neck so bad. And I got cocky and instead of just jumping straight, I took like a little leap, like they tell you not to. And my feet hit the, the pavement. They said, you know, you can go more than three times if you want to. I said, I'm good. I'm good to go. So anyway, once I started that, I really liked it um, so much. And the fact that my wife at the time was pregnant 
my dad pulled me in the office and he said, uh, how's fire school going for you? It's going great, dad. I really enjoyed it. He goes, okay. He goes, well, I'm going to have to let you go. I go, excuse me? He goes, I'm going to have to let you go because, you know, you can't work on the weekends. You can't go out of town. You can't do anything I need you to do. And I can't, I can't ask these other guys to do that and not ask my own son to do it. So I said, you're going to lay off your own son who's got a pregnant wife at home? He goes, no, it's your choice, which was an important lesson for me, Dave. There's always choices that you can make. And he said, you make your choice. And I, he says, I hope it works out for you, but I have to make my choice. My choice is to run this organization for my brother, who is my boss, to make sure he's successful. I can't do that if I got to worry about whether you're going to work or not. So finished school, did great. They made me the squad leader. So I thought that was awesome. I don't know why, because I kept kind of getting in trouble for opening. You know, I would, like one thing I did, I, they were, one of the, the uh, evolutions was we would lay a line and back then I think it was like a two and a half inch line or something small. And then you would have to, the, the engineer was supposed to clamp off the hose and come back and hook the hose up and then unclap it. And the guy at the, the hydrant would open the hydrant. Well, the guy at the hydrant was getting ready to open the hydrant without the hose being clamped off. So I yelled, watch out. That's a safety thing, right? Haney, who was the instructor back then, you probably, if you went to Seminole, you know him. If you don't go to Seminole, you probably still know him. You may still work there. I don't know. But he, he, he put a coupling around my neck and told me, put, start running. And, you know, I was fully geared out with air packs and everything. They just start running until I tell you to stop. So I said, but I, he goes, you better start running. That's how it started out. And then once I got out of that, I thought I would get a job. And here's a cool thing, too. While I was working out at this place called Holiday Health Spa, because that's where you worked out back then, I met the fire chief of Union Park. This was before I went through standards. So I'm thinking, I'm going to have a job because Fireman Jim will give me a job because he loves us. So I thought, I'll go to Union Park where Fireman Jim is the, is the chief and get out. And um, they say, look, uh, now you got to sign up for EMT because they're not going to give you a job without EMT. So I signed up for EMT. But then I started my job hunting. And, you know, I went to every fire department I could. I took all kinds of physical ability tests. I did really well on all the physical ability tests, but I just couldn't get a job. And the department that said they were going to hire me once I got out of standards, they didn't need anybody by the time I got out of standards. So I was getting a little bit, you know, like, man, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. So finally, I got a, I, 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 I got a hold of Union Park where Fireman Jim worked. He never seen him because... Jim Dunham was the chief of Union Park who was trying to transition in to be in the chief when they were going to go county. So he was never there. Chief Moody was there. You remember Chief Moody? I would call him after I took the physical billy test. I would call him and the, the lady would say every time I call him every Wednesday at two o'clock and they'd say the same thing. We'll call you, honey, when, 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 when we have an opening, but we really want paramedics. You understand that? I said, yes, ma'am. I know. But you said, you can find a paramedic. You might take me. And she goes, okay. So finally one day um, she goes, hold on. I got somebody that you want to talk to. And it was, uh, it was um, Chief Moody. And he said, I'd like to offer you a job with uh, Union Park Fire Department. And that deep voice is, and I, I, I had a, I didn't have but one car because my, and my wife would use that. So I had to ride my bicycle back and forth to work, which I was cleaning carpets because I couldn't have a job with a boiler company anymore. I, I really wanted a job in the fire service to surf more. That's why I wanted the job, Dave. 
I mean, and I know that's a disappointing answer, but that was the truth. The difference is once I got into that environment, it changed me to make me, I mean, I realized how important the job was after going through the classes, meeting these guys and the instructors and talking to them. I got a real feeling for what it would be like after going in those burn buildings and doing all those evolutions where you know, you're jumping off buildings with people and you're building the camaraderie with your little squad and you're trying to help them tie their knots and you're doing all that. I mean, that's the true essence to me of the fire services, each person trying to help each other and each person might not be as good at one thing as the other, but when they come together, kind of like a transformer, we always get the job done. Once I actually got into the job, it just, you know, the, the desire, the burning desire to, to do better, to be better, to, to be the best at every position they put me in is, is, you know, is what kind of fueled me. So the fire department made me a firefighter. What would you identify as the hardest challenge you've faced while, while in the field and in operations? I can't think of anything that was hard. It was, it was so much fun and it was such, it was like being a sponge and being able to absorb all, because again, I had no knowledge of what, who firefighters were, what they were, what they were supposed to be. It was the only thing that you could probably watch about firefighters back then was uh, Johnny, you know, whatever that show was, uh, Johnny Gage, um, so I, I had I had no preconceived notion, which I think unfortunately nowadays people come in with a, a preconceived notion of what it is to be a firefighter and what the fire service is like. Since I didn't have that, you know, it was just an, uh, in the beginning just another job. Just you know, the biggest thing was you're living with people of all kind of diverse backgrounds. You might not even like them in the beginning. You might not understand them. You might think they're kind of weird, but you have to you have to get through all that and just realize that you know you're there to to work with them to get the mission done, and that mission is the most important thing. And then once you get to know these people, you realize they're just we're all quirk, firefighters are all quirky. We we all are. We, we I don't think we could be in that provision without being a little off, uh, which I'm not trying to insult anybody out in your audience, but I feel anyway. <laughs> But no, it wasn't hard, Dave. It was just, it was, it was, an, I mean, I loved 35 years. I can't think of, um, you know, there was, there was, well, I tell you, the, the only difficult time that I found was when they were the layoffs. You know, that was probably, yes, that was difficult because some of my friends were getting laid off. Um, we went door to door, even if we knew we weren't on that list to get laid off, we went door to door. One of our new firefighters, Danny Del Resso, he was going to be one of those guys that was going to lose a job. And we learned, you know, Danny was a brother. We learned to love him. Um, we didn't want to lose him. We didn't want him to go through any kind of pain of not having a job. So that was a pretty rough time. And that was, that was pretty difficult. I remember at the time too, they said they were going to get rid of the engineer position. I was an engineer then. And, you know, I was going through a divorce like I always was. And I needed money. I ended up going and getting a job because they scared me so much because I'm like, what am I going to do if they get rid of the engineer's position? You know, I, they're not because they said we're not going to pay you the, the engineer wage. And I'm like, mm. so I got a job as a valet parker at that was as 19. What I don't know. I was like too old to be a valet parker. All the people that I was going against were like 
20, 19, 20 year old kids. And they made me go to the church street um, where Cheyenne was. And the test was you had to run across the parking lot and go up the bank. Uh, it's like a big incline in the parking lot. And I wasn't gonna let any of those kids outrun me. And they didn't, but I drove my Jeep to the interview because that's the only thing I had. And I couldn't drive it home for a long time because I was cramping so bad. <laughs> I had to sit on the park bench. I didn't have any money. So I had to go into one of the stores and beg them for some water um, just so I could get enough hydration in me to go to get home. So um, that was probably the most difficult, the hard time. But that's the only thing I can think of, honestly. Throughout your, your time, in, in my experience, it, it's uh, it's cyclical. You know, you you have your your good times and your down times, and those times when you're like at the the top of your game, and then other times when you're looking to improve yourself and and get back to the top. You know, it can be when you're a firefighter or an engineer, a lieutenant, a chief officer, but there's always those ups and downs. For me, during those times the, of the ups and downs, there's always people that I can think of that had uh, a great deal of influence on me, like people that I looked up to that I, I wanted to try and be like, or I would go to to say, hey, this is this is where I'm at. What can I do better? I'm, I'm curious if you've got people like that in your memory that, that you can recall that really influenced you, shaped your career, and you know, helped you get to where where you were. Uh, oh, absolutely. I don't I don't think you get to certain places in your career. And if, if you get to them, unless you're um, mentored correctly or, or tutelage right, you don't get it from books. And I always tell people that, you know, they, we're all always, and you know, that's just the way we are. We're just so critical of people and we're critical of our supervisors. And I tell people all the time, I go, you know, I, I don't know what you expect of a new supervisor because taking a test doesn't make that supervisor. You, you, you know, you got to give them time. You got to, they, they have to, grow just like you know you weren't the best firefighter when you started out you had to learn stuff and grow they have to too so you can't be so critical but we just are but if you have people in your corner like you said and i can tell you right now the first person that i met at union park fire department was a guy named chris growley and hopefully you know who chris growley is he was um, my first battalion chief okay there you go well he was a captain with uh, union park when i met him and he was the guy that gave me um, my physical ability test, which believe me when I say physical ability test, there wasn't much of a physical ability test. You know, it was very simplistic stuff um, for, for me and probably for a majority of people. But the one thing that I hated because I told you in high school, I was a sprinter. Um, the farthest I ever wanted to run was a hundred yards. And that's it. I had to run 220s and 330 intermediate hurdles, but 100 yards was as far as I ever want to run. I told myself when I got out of high school, I never run more than 100 yards again in my life, which we had to run a mile and a half. I think it was like 12 minutes, which I'm going, man, I don't know. I haven't like even in track practice, 
they would every track practice you're supposed to run a mile and they had the trackettes mark you off that you ran the mile and it, it go to the coach well i would just tell them just mark me off i'm not running that and they would they mark me off so they spoiled me i'm like a mile and a half i'm sure i can get through that in 12 minutes that can't be that bad and it wouldn't have been except for chris put me in his 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 vehicle and we drove and at the time you know union park it's station 80 you're familiar we went down bonneville drive and then we turned and went to the uh, elementary school and chris was i loved him he, but he never quit talking and he talked he was talking to me the whole way so i'm just engaging because i don't want to be rude and i'm talking to him and i don't know where we're going he's not telling me he's like just get in the car i get in the car i'm not going to ask any questions get to the elementary school he goes okay this is your mile and a half i'll see you back at the station you got 12 minutes I panicked. I didn't know where the station was. I wasn't familiar with that area. So I was trying to catch the car. And then he made the turn and I'm like, I don't know which way the guy turned. So I took a left, luckily, and I, I'm just running, but I'm sweating because I'm like, I may be going the right way, the wrong way. I have no clue. But next thing I know, I see him out in the middle of the road and he's waving. He goes, you better hurry up. He's tapping his watch. So I got there. So it's, it's funny because he became uh, my lieutenant when it went county. Um, not the first one. Uh, a guy named Rick Brock was my first, uh, I think, my first commander on the engine. And I don't know if you heard the story about Rick, but, you know, he was he was blinded in an accident. Um, so he couldn't come back to work, which is a sad story. But um, Chris Crowley ended up being my lieutenant at some point in my career. And he was that guy. I mean, he he. And back then, not a whole lot of people had college degrees because it was kind of a blue collar. That's what I liked about, you know, what did you used to do? I used to be an electrician. What did you do? I was a carpenter. What did you used to do? I was an iron worker. Chris would, would say, he, you know, he wouldn't brag about it. He'd just say, yeah, I got a degree at Rollins College, which, whew, that's a pretty big deal. But man, the guy was so smart and he had so much knowledge and he shared it like it was like an open vessel and he just poured it out. And if you were smart, at the dinner table, the lunch table, you know, when I was driving him any, any time, you know, and anytime I'd like, you know, say, I, I want to take a promotional test, you know, Chris would, would help me out. He was, he was probably my first mentor. And then, uh, Mark Richardson was my Lieutenant. I, you know, I was, I was lucky because, um, you know, when, when I first got hired on, there was no, um, length of time before you could drive. In fact, the first time I got to drive, it was this old tanker in the station. I was getting ready to jump on the engine. They said, no, take the tanker. And I'm like, take the tanker? And they go, yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't know where we're going. We're going to Bithlow. And I, I didn't know any, I, any, I know any addresses. I was brand new. So I'm like, I just have to follow the engine. Of course, I couldn't keep up with the engine, the old tanker. And Chief Moody was behind me. He was following me. So I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be embarrassing. So I, I can see the smoke. So I figure out I'm go down this road, but I missed the road to go in. And I went the opposite way. So when I went the opposite way, I passed the engine and I took the, the hose off and I hooked up. And here comes um, Chief Moody marching over to me. And he's like, hey, I want to tell you something. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm already fired. He goes, seasoned guys wouldn't have understood that you should go in that way instead of trying to go behind the engine and get behind the engine you 
I can't believe you knew how to do that. And I'm going, yes, sir. <laughs> just, just dumb luck. But yeah, I think uh, Chris Crowley. And then after five years, you know, I took the engineer's test and I, I did rather well. So I got promoted quickly and I didn't want to leave 80 because that's all I knew. In fact, um, I put, when I got there, they had a brand new um, 1981 Mac that I got to put in service, you know, put the cabinets in, do all that kind of stuff. And that was my engine. Back then, again, you didn't, you, there was no out-of-class pay. You, it was an honor. If they said, you're driving the engine today, that was an honor. I mean, you didn't ask for any money. You didn't need any money. It was just, you got to drive. So, you know, once I drove the engine a few times, that's what I wanted to do. So once I got my five years, that's when you could take the engineer's test. I took it. I was, you know, successful. Uh, and she, of course, Chris Crowley helped me be that way. The guy was a genius when it comes to pumping and, and all that stuff. And back then we had to take our, our engineer's test in an unsynchronized map, which was good because we had a tanker that was unsynchronized. So I knew how to drive that. So it worked out okay for me. I was like, man, I wonder where they're going to station me. And I was up in North Carolina with some friends and they, I got a call from Doug Simoniak and he said, hey man, you got promoted. And I said, okay, great. Where am I going? He goes, I can't believe it, but they're going to leave you here just on a different shift. So I got, I think I started on C shift and I went to B shift and Mark Richardson was uh, a, a lieutenant on that shift. So I don't know if you know Mark very well, but he's another, I mean, a lot, a lot of those guys from Union Park were really good about teaching you stuff and taking time to, you know, you know, you, in that engineer spot, you got to be like, that was like uh, internship and you, you were a journeyman. And if you had the right lieutenant, he would teach you all kinds of stuff. And Mark would always tell me, he goes, look, um, you know, when we get here, this is what you got to look for. This is what you got to say on the radio, stuff like that. So he was grooming me because back then, like, I forget how long it is before somebody can ride up now. Do you remember as an engineer or a lieutenant, if you're an engineer? There's a certain amount of time they got with those training. It's a year. You've got a year uh, as an engineer. And then after that is when they start preparing you to ride up. And then you do the, the lieutenant's academy and mm -hmm. your lieutenant's packet and all that. You know how long I was an engineer before I rode up? One week. Okay. <laughs> One week. But the good thing was, when I, when I was driving all these guys like Chris Crowley and the people that I, you know, they would, they would teach me. So it, it was helpful. And, you know, it's just like one of those things being thrown in the fire. And I think we had every call that you could imagine the first day I rode engineer from a bomb to motorcycle accidents to fire, you know, building fires. Uh, and the scariest thing that I had was an automatic fire alarm because I was scared to leave it when you're, when you're the engineer, you're riding engineer, you're like, let's go, man. It's just, I want to get back to bed. What are you doing? And, you know, Mark would be like, nope, we're not going until I'm completely 100% sure there's no fire. We're checking this, this, and this. And you're sleepy and groggy, and you know it's really nothing. But when you're in charge, the guys are like, let's go, Rick. Let's go. I go, nope. <laughs> I'm going. We're not going. So, yeah. So I'd say Chris was a great mentor. Mark was another incredible uh force you know and helped me he would even help me like we would do role playing all the time when i get ready for a test you know he'd bring people in from other stations and they'd throw all these different scenarios at me and he really wanted to help and wanted to help you do well 
And then uh, towards the end, uh, I think Mike Brandt was the guy. Mike kind of took me under his wing and, you know, we worked out together and stuff. So he was real interested in my career and he had some real good morals. And, you know, a lot of people, when they get in these positions, Dave, and you know, it as well as I do, they want to be, they, they want to be the battalion chief or they want to be the lieutenant and they want to be in charge, but they kind of don't want to make the hard, the hard choices. Like no, nobody, when, when you're in a, the dynamic of a team and you're an engine crew and you're working together and you're complaining about other people or this chief sucks or, you know, I can't believe we did that and blah, blah, blah. You're in a team, but when you're a supervisor, you're responsible for stuff. Uh, you don't want to be that guy that makes everybody mad at you. Some people don't. I mean, I don't, nobody likes to make enemies, but somebody's got to, to say, Hey, and I, and you know, one thing Mike Brandt taught me is don't ever say, we're doing it because the chief said to do it. You know, your job as a supervisor is whatever SOPs, whatever rules, whatever that chief says, it's your job to make sure that that's taken care of. If you don't want that job, then freaking take the bugles off and, and jump back in the engineer seat. If you like being an engineer, be an engineer. They taught me a lot of good lessons. When you made the transition to chief officer, was there somebody that kind of mentored you in that position? Yeah, Chief Brand, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Pete. He, well, he, um, was, uh, he was an assistant chief at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an assistant chief. And here's the way it worked for me. So five years straight to engineer. Loved it. Would have stayed there probably for my whole career if I'd had, it was my choice, but, it, you know, things you're steered a certain way and there's a certain reason and certain people see certain things in you and, and, you know, you'll get them saying certain things that get into your brain, like a earworm that won't go out and it, it will change your path significantly, which is what it did to me. Cause I just wanted to be a firefighter. That's all I wanted to be. And then once I was a firefighter and got to drive an engine, I just want to be an engineer. That's all I want to be. And I, I always wanted to be the best at every position, I guess the, the ego, made me feel I was, you know, the best at certain positions. Um, I thought I was the best firefighter that ever walked the face of the earth. I thought I was the best engineer that ever pumped a truck. I wasn't, but I thought I was, and I did okay. Because back then they made you ride up so much. And remember, like you said, I was from Union Park uh, District, was innocent of the ways of the world, didn't know a whole lot. I knew that we were supposed to hate Lake Barton for some reason. It was kind of like a different gang. Um, I met the guys from Lake Barton. They were awesome guys. You know, they were just guys, firefighters. But I didn't know all these numbers were actually stations that they were talking about. So I remember they'd say, hey, Rick, you're going to ride up at station 28. I go, is that a joke? Is there a, actually a station 28? And they go, yeah. And I got lost going there. And they'd send me to 42. And that's back when they had the sewage that was dripping into the kitchen. So, you know, it's like all nightmare stuff. But, you know, I refused to sign that piece of paper that's saying I didn't feel comfortable writing out of class because when you take the engineer's position, it says right on it, you'll be expected to write out of class. So, you know, I, I could not in good faith say, even though I didn't want to, even though I was the senior engineer in the battalion and the junior engineer in the battalion, was sitting his ass at station 84 while I was floating all over the county. 
which, you know, I was, I, I, I had a hard lesson one time because, you know, I told, I said, never complain. Things your dad teaches, you know, you, your dad teaches you, look, you know, the way he made me work was if you get paid eight hours, you should give him eight and a half or nine. Doesn't mean you have to work that long, just means that's how hard you should work. And if you go ask for a job and they give it to you, always understand that they didn't come seeking you out. You asked for that job. So whatever that job is, you do whatever they tell you to do and shut your mouth. Um, you don't call in, you don't call in sick. You go to work every day. That's what you're getting paid to do. You're not paid to get. So, you know, that's how I was raised. And I tried to be that way as best I could, but you know how it is. You just have, you're just sick of floating. And one day you're like, man, you know what? I float every day. Can't somebody else float today? So I remember John Heckmanovich said, yeah, man, I'll go. I was like, wow, that's so nice of him to do that. I had a worst shift of my life, Dave. The worst shift of my life at Station 80 was that day. We were out in the muck and moving um, those big sprinklers. You know, the fire got under into the muck and was traveling. We were pulling hose. We were out there all night long, hardly got any food. It was like the next morning, I just thought, you know what? That's what you get for complaining. So I decided never to complain, but it got to the point where I was never at my station and I was like floating to ride up. And I finally, and I didn't want to ever be a lieutenant. I was just not in my, just wasn't in my, my plan. It didn't look like, like the way Mark did it at our station. And I really appreciate this because it, it gives you the opportunity to grow, even though you don't know that's what's going on. You're just like, this is cool because he'd say, look, I got a lot of crap to do in the office, all this paperwork junk that the chief's got me doing. So you take care of the, you take care of everything outside this office. So that means I was in charge of making the guys do whatever chores they were supposed to do. I was in charge of making sure we got our training done. I was in charge of all kinds of stuff, which I had a good crew and it was no big deal because everybody was hardworking people back then. But I learned a lot doing that. And Mark even told me, he goes, man, you, just, you need to take the lieutenant's test because you're just never here. And he goes, things never stay the same. This, this shift one day is going to break up. And I had guys, and I don't know if you remember these guys, but it was me, Mark was lieutenant, um, Steve Manning. You remember Steve Manning, old Vietnam vet that had been shot several times, Al Vargas, um, Lance Shirella was there for a while, Mike Kelly was there for a while. I mean, wow. we just, we had, and Jason Brown was there for a while. He was my comedic relief. Don't ever ask him about my EMT skills, please. They'll tell you all kinds of lies that I wasn't good, which I sucked. So I said, well, you know, I got to take the lieutenant's test. So I took the lieutenant's test and, and then, you know, it, unfortunately it was getting time to be promoted. And I, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you feel kind of sick in your stomach because you're, you've remember I was five years as a firefighter at station 80. And then I think I was an engineer for 15, 16 years. And now my world's going to change because I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm close to being promoted. But I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm prepared for this. I floated all over. I've met all these different people. I've worked with a bunch of people. I've done all kinds of stuff. It's going to be good. Hopefully I'll get a good station. If I don't, I'll make the best of it because that's what you're taught to do. The supervisor will make the station. You make the atmosphere. So then I get a, I get the uh, call over the intercom one day. Hey, Rick, um, got a visitor in the bay. I'm like, oh man, who could that be? I walk out and there's this big, tall chief dude. 
And I'm like, that looks, is that, it was the brand new fire chief, chief Clark. He wasn't brand new, but he was new to me because I'd gone through many, many fire chiefs before him in the county. Um, but I'm like, oh man, you know how it is. The chief comes to visit you. It's usually you either did something really good or you've done something really bad. And the way I was, it was probably something kind of bad. Not that I do anything at work bad, but you know, I went out and did stuff. So he's, that's when he came and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm chief Carl Plogger. Um, I can't believe this, but we don't have a wellness program. And, um, I asked, uh, the management labor who would be the guy and everybody's pointed to you. And I'm like, man, they must not like me. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So of course, then your brain starts working, right? Dave, you going, cause I was, I don't want to use the word overtime. I, I worked a lot of overtime, anything that I could get. I worked, you know, I would work train engines. I would work anything. I didn't care if they called me, Hey, go to uh, I'm gone because, you know, I needed the money. So I'm thinking, Oh, okay, chief. Well, you know what? I can do your wellness program for you on my days that I'm off shift. And then I can, I'll do at least two to three days a week for you. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, you understand this is too important. You gotta, you gotta come to headquarters. Thought I was going to throw up. So I'm like, can I think about it? And he said, he said, yeah, you, you can think about it. He goes, uh, but, but uh, don't think too long. And then uh, to be honest with you, a couple of things started going through my mind. I'd been, and, and you may know this, you may not know this, but I was always that thorn in their side. You know, I was like, hey, we need, we need a wellness, I didn't really say a wellness program, we need fitness equipment. We need stuff here. We'd bring our own stuff there. And my, my shift would always work out. Well, two of the guys would always work out. I always thought that was important. I always thought, man, some of these guys that I go on fires with, no, no disrespect, they all were very hard workers. But, you know, I would be on the same tank and those guys would go out and disappear. And that's back when you didn't have, you know, it could just be you and they're working by yourself. And I'm thinking, man, you know. And then, of course, we had some guys that were uh, having heart attacks and, you know, had strokes and different things and i'm like you know we could prevent this stuff just simple stuff just working out and a little bit of eating properly so they put me on committee after committee you know just to get make me leave them alone but i wouldn't stop and finally i said okay i guess i, I guess we're not ever going to have a wellness program or anything here and that's when chief plogger came and said uh, i'm gonna um support you and i'm gonna give you a budget so i'm like how can i really how can i say no to that um, and then I got counsel from Chief Brandt. Chief Brandt said, well, you can say no if you want to. He goes, but don't you ever, ever ask that fire chief for anything because you don't deserve anything from him because he's asking you for something and it's something important to him and he doesn't even know you. So, you know, that's a big deal. So anyway, so I took the position, which was pure hell in the beginning, going from, you know, just shift guy with all your crew and common bonds and brotherhood to what do I do here? You know, put me in a little cubby. Here's a stencil pad. Make sure it's the best wellness program in the world. Good luck. Okay. So I didn't, that's the bad thing is I went straight from engineer to lieutenant, but wasn't lieutenant in the field, except for all the time that I rode engineer, I mean, rode lieutenant, rode up, which helped me, you know, thank God I had that time. You, you take the position, 
down at headquarters to build the department's wellness program. And we're only looking at, you know, from your shoulders up, but you know, you're pretty jacked. You're, I mean, I, I don't even really know how old you are because you don't look your age. Um, well, I feel it. <laughs> I'm on <laughs> Medicare. I'm 65. Um, but I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. I spent many, many years working out with you at, at the Fit Pit. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've always been, I, I'm guessing, in the, and I want to say that you told me this, that you and Mike Kelly were into bodybuilding. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is. Yes, we, um, me and Mike Kelly, we'd get in our little underwear and go up on stage and, with oil all over us and, and make these silly poses to music. Yes, we did that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a good, I didn't like that part of it. That part wasn't fun, but what I really liked is the dedication you had to have to will your body down to a certain, you know, you had to have, you know, a certain dedication and commitment to that. Just like if you want to be a good lieutenant, if you want to be a good battalion chief, if you want to be a good assistant chief, if you want to be a good baker, if you want to be a good welder, you have to dedicate yourself to it to be really good at it. And man, you learn so much about your body when you start depleting it from foods and you start, you know, training a certain way and you put yourself into deficits and places where you never thought you could be. I mean, unfortunately, you get carried away and obsessed with it because I would come to work, not I'd be eating dry chicken or fish and broccoli. I'd cut my carbs, I'd cut my water. And of course, as soon as you cut your water, you get the worst brush fire there is. I remember one time we're on a brush fire. And I was dying. I mean, because I was weak. I'd gone from like 210 to 175, and I was weak. And this lady came out, real sweet lady with iced tea. And she goes, here you go, boys. And I'm like, oh, my God, thank God. And I thought it was unsweet and iced tea. And I took a couple of glugs of it, and it was sweet. And I spit it all over the, the road, and I just poured it out, and I threw the cup down. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, oh, my God, that lady just must think I was a mean son of a gun. <laughs> but uh and then i would be driving the rescue truck for a paramedic and you know 80 it was the area i knew after a while so great and i was turning the wrong way going to places and the paramedics going dude you got to eat something or go home because you can't work like this so i finally realized you got to take vacations when you're doing that kind of stuff but um yeah it was uh it, me and Mike, uh, it, it was a lot of fun back then. We went to a really um, hardcore gym called Orange Avenue Gym. Have you ever heard of that gym? Yeah. And right before we went there, it was uh, Milo Steinborn's old gym. And before we got there, thank God it was before we got there, they would make you wrestle a half an hour with these guys, like as they're just to throw around before they let you work out in that gym. Um, and when I got there, you know, I was still like, when I got in the fire service, I was 155. These people were monsters and they were doing nasty things, acting like they're doing nasty things. They were trying to run you out of the gym. They do all kinds of stuff. You get on the leg curl and they get behind you and, you know, talk about prison and, you know, they're breaking boards with their head. They're slapping each other in the face. And it's like, oh my gosh. But then 
it's like anything else, like a fire, like a fire station. Once you get through that first part of it, you become part of the culture. Then, you know, it just goes from there. You're just one of the guys. And we used to, we used to work out with a guy who was, uh, I'm not going to say the name of the motorcycle gang because I don't want him to come after me, but he was the president of a motorcycle gang, big old guys. And the name was Spike. And man, there's some rough characters. There were some rough, rough characters in that gym. But uh, all, you know, once you got to know them, they all were pretty good guys. That led you down that path to ultimately end up being the guy, the architect of uh, Orange County's safety and wellness program. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, Dave, it, it worked out. Um, and f again, it, it was, it was talking to the right person at the right time because my first vision of the wellness program was not what the wellness program ended up being because I, honestly, I was just a, a meathead muscle head and, and that's unfortunately the way things are happening in today's fire service. So a fire chief, if they don't know anything about exercise and they're working out, but they know that a wellness program would be important because they've heard it's important and they've heard statistics. Like I think Orange County, we saved $3 million in a couple of years. We went from being the, the worst person uh, department on a workman's comp to being the third worst. We were still bad because, you know, firefighting is going to have injuries. It's, it's tough work. You can't get around that. People can get hurt. When I started, there was several medical separations. And after we were there, we had uh, no medical separations for heart disease. Unfortunately, that's towards the end is when the cancer started catching up. And that was what was, was getting us. But I was going to have, you know, power racks or Smith machines, heavy dumbbells, leg presses, all the stuff that I enjoyed working out with and Mike Kelly enjoyed working out with. And I was, I was working part-time as a trainer for a friend of mine who used to run Orange Avenue Gym and he had his own fitness facility over on Mills. And I happened to go over there to talk to him one day and I said, Hey man, I'm going to be the wellness coordinator. And you know, you got any, any buy I that you buy equipment from that I should hook up with. And he goes, yeah, I do, you know? And he goes, what, what are you going to get? And I told him, he goes, he goes, so how many people in your fire department are like you and Mike Kelly? And I go, me and Mike Kelly are, we're, we're originals. There's nobody like us. He goes, well, okay, let me restate this uh, egomaniac. He goes, who works out like you guys? I'm like, mm, maybe three, 5%. Because back then, you know, in the early 80s, Dave, it wasn't working out wasn't like it is now in the fire service. Not a whole lot of people did it. And I was being honest from what I'd see going through the county, the people I would see, the people I talked to. And he goes, so you're buying equipment for you and Mike Kelly. You're not really buying it for your audience. And I go, what? He goes, man, he goes, we train, you train people with me in this facility. What do we use? I said, we use the Vectra and some light dumbbells and some cardio equipment. He goes, yes, because these people don't know how to work out. They haven't did the Charles Atlas program and then got into you know holiday health spa and learned stuff from there and then went to Orange Avenue gym and became pot power builder, bodybuilder. You just want them to work out, right? They're just starting. That's what you said your program's about. I go, yeah. So luckily for me, I, I ran into them because it would have been a whole different ball game and it would have failed. And I can tell you nowadays after traveling to a bunch of different states and 
talking to a bunch of people that are in charge of wellness programs, it's the same thing. The fire chief sees somebody who's a CrossFit athlete. Oh man, we're going to make this guy our workout guy. Well, how many people in the fire service do you actually think is going to work out like that? But you have this guy and you give him $150,000 and he buys all the stuff. And I see it all the time. It's in the corners of every fire station. And the guys that really work out hard, like the, cross, the real CrossFit athletes in those departments, you think they're going to do that on shift because they're not going to get themselves to a point where they can't perform because they know their body. They know if they do those hard, challenging workouts, they do at their box. They can't perform then at work and they won't be able to eat and eat's important. So, you know, but luckily for me, I talked to him and, you know, because it was new, it worked out and we saved some money. We saved a lot of money. And more importantly, you know, I will say, I think we saved quite a few lives um, with that program. And I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of it. So, but you know, again, it's like anything else. I didn't do it. I had a good team. Luckily for me, I was put under a supervisor who understood he didn't really know anything about wellness. He knew that it was important to the fire chief and he wanted, he wanted to do what the fire chief wanted done. So he would let me do, you know, he would say, I don't know anything about that. So just do it. You know, just and he let me do what I did, and luckily for me, it became kind of successful, happily, happily ever after. I'm wondering if there was like some kind of epiphany one day, or I've just always been curious, and we've never had this conversation about how you started with uh, the fire sled fitness. That's one of those stories where necessity is a mother of invention type stories. Um, once, the, you know, the chief plogger, once I got something done and, and, you know, most chiefs are like this. If, if you do something successful, then they want to give you something else and then something else until they bury you and you can't be successful. It seems like is what happens to most people. But so once the wellness program was going along pretty well, and, you know, once that we, you know, we, we developed a plan, we had a plan, we started to plan, it was being accepted because what he did do, and I have chief, I have lunch with Chief Plogger every once in a while, and I always, now that he's retired and I'm retired, it gives me the chance to kind of gig him a little bit about stuff. But also, I got to learn some reasons why he did some certain things with me because, again, he's one of those guys that saw something in me that I didn't see in me and I didn't expect to do, but he saw it and he was trying to cultivate and do that. So once the wellness program was going okay, He's like, and at the time, I don't know if you remember the, they started the IPAT in incumbent physical ability test. And that was done through chief Middleton's office, which was, I think logistics for some reason, if I'm right. And it was him and LaRon Graham started doing that. So fire chief told me, he goes, look, I'm going to let these guys get going. I, he goes, I want you out there talking to people and seeing what's going on. He goes, but once, once you get comfortable, it, the, the, it's going to be yours before the kickoff. It's going to be yours. We'll let, they're going to develop it through this IO solutions place, but it's going to be yours. And I didn't want it, Dave, because, you know, honestly, I, I felt that I hadn't made hardly any enemies up until this, you know, everybody is real happy for me that I was a wellness coordinator when I went out to the stations because chief blogger made me go to every station on every shift 
and deliver what the plan was going to be, what we were doing, which I didn't want to do. I'm like, I don't want to go and talk to all these people, you know, that who knows what they're going to say. We could get in fights, you know, it could be bad. And he said, but you know, he's a chief. So what am I going to say? I'm not going to do it. But then after, after it did it, I realized why every person in that fire department knew what we were doing. There was no surprises. They knew what we were doing and why we were doing it. And the, the, the main the, the, the main topic was, this is to take care of you. This is so you can not get hurt in your career. This is so you can retire after 25, 30 years, whatever you want, and you can have a great retirement and enjoy your pension. That's the whole reason for this wellness program. And truly, that's what Chief Plogger wanted for people. You know, he didn't want to see people die. You know what the old thing was? After you retire, you only got five years to live. That's scary. And it used to be true. Then it went up to eight. And, and now... I don't know what it is, but hopefully we can make it a lot, lot longer. He says, okay, you ready for the iPad? And I'm like, not really, but, you know, might as well, let's do it. So he put me in charge of iPad. And not only was I in charge of facilitating the iPad, I was in charge of like, if somebody wasn't successful, I was in charge of remediating them because no, he says, nobody will not be successful in this program. I don't want, if somebody doesn't get the time we're not going to make that a big deal, but you're going to remediate them and you're going to provide them with a fitness program so they can do their job. The IPAT was basically job simulated task, but the parts that uh, people were having trouble with, and I don't know if you remember the whole thing, the going through the maze, the <laughs> opening and closing the hydrant, dragging the mannequin, you know, but the three things that stood out that people were having trouble with was if you were light, and I don't care how good a shape you were in, and there was this lieutenant we had, and he was in phenomenal physical condition. Everybody, you know, knew it, and he went to advance that charge hose line because it was 100, 100 feet, and, you know, it was probably jacked into about 130 PSI, and he went to move it, and his feet weren't going anywhere, and I never, I never, I'll never forget his face, like, what the heck? And finally, he got going, but because he was so light, it was so hard for him. Some heavier guys would just lean into it and just push it through. Then we had this thing called the Molitor machine, which I never liked. It's a big steel cage, and it's supposed to simulate breaching a ceiling, which I've never breached a ceiling like this before because you push it up like five times and pull it down four times, do different things. When I breach a ceiling, I push up, grab it, pull it down. So I'm like, that's not very good. And you couldn't change the weight on it. So if you couldn't do it, you couldn't do it. And then the mannequin drag. And if you know how it is, if you don't have a lot of leg strength when you're um, light or you're just not in very good shape, the mannequin drag is very hard. So people were not passing. You know, most people were passing, but some people weren't passing. And so I'd go by, my, by herself and I'd say, look, I'm going to develop this workout plan for you. You have equipment at the station. I can help you with it, you know. I can come out and he, and then they go, okay, what are we doing? I'd say, well, you know, since you can't do the hose advance, thinking we're going to start out with some air squats then we'll do some leg curls, uh, maybe some leg press on the vector machine, maybe some lunges. Maybe we can even start doing some deadlifts and some squats. And they're like, nope, I don't do that on the fire scene. I'm not doing it now. You just get me to where I pass that damn test. And my people understand that I can do the job. So I get with this guy, his name is David Eves, who's my business partner now. And I say, Dave, 
because I was buying fitness equipment from him. Real good guy. Always, always was interested in the program. I said, I, I, we're, I'm doing this test and I, I'm having problems because these people aren't real receptive, the, especially the older people of these workouts I want to give them. I, I know that it's going to make them to where they can do the task, but they don't understand how it translates into that. And he goes, let me come out and see the test. So he came out and he goes, nope, nothing. He goes, nobody's got anything for firefighters, man. He goes, you guys, there's not enough of you to where they can make any money. I go, what? It's about money? He goes, look, man, everything's about money in business. And I'm like, oh, I go, okay. We talked and we talked and we said, let's go down. We went to a coffee shop and we started thinking. So we drew this thing out on a paper, something that you could advance Joe's hose line with, something you could do a ceiling breach with, and something you could pull like weight backwards with. Because it didn't matter what it looked like. It just had to do the same movements. And you had to be able to do like every bodybuilding technique or powerlifting technique where you, you know, get to a certain load, then you overload. And then it was time to do the task. You can do the task because you've overloaded and your body's used to it. And your strength is built up. And sometimes it's just the neurolog neurological part of the, the task that you can't do anyway. But once you do it a few times, then you're more comfortable in a testing situation. So we, you know, long story short, we developed this thing. He had a friend of his in North Carolina that made fitness equipment. The guy said, man, I'd love to make that for you. So we made it and all the people that were unsuccessful were successful because like I, I use the hose advance because the hose advance, I would load it up with nothing. Then I'd get them to pull it at certain times and I'd load it up with plates, you know, weight plates and where it was hard for them. And then I would unload it. And then when it came time to do the hose, they go, they pull it like it's butter. They go, what is, what is this? Is this a calf engine? I go, no, man, you, you're good. You got the technique down and you got the strength and that's all that matters. You don't have to do all that other stuff. So ceiling breach, same way. If you had uh, upper body strength issues, we, at that time we used bands and we changed the bands, which was not the best thing, but it was a start. And then pulling the, pulling the mannequin or the sled backwards was the same thing. You could, because here's what, here's what really upsets me nowadays is, what do you think an average firefighter weighs? Just an, an average, like- 185? Yeah, I'd say 185. And we, we always say the gear is 50 or 60 pounds. I see some things where they say that we wear 100 pounds worth of gear, but, and some people might be in New York um, with all the stuff they carry. But we always, for these tests, we always have 165 pound mannequins, which drives me crazy. So, you know, what we try to do is we try to overload because I, I honestly believe that if you ever were in a position where your partner went down and you knew that you weren't physically capable of moving that person or even trying, it would probably ruin your career and may lead to some bad stuff later down the road. So I wanted to make sure everybody would be able to pull a lot of weight backwards and know how that, know how your hamstrings and your calves feel when you're pulling backwards. So that was very important. When I was at the Fit Pit and, you know, I was down there and I'd go in there and I'd do that stupid um, fire sled workout. The young kids would be like, what, what, what is that old guy doing that for? And, you know, Lieutenant Willis used to say, because if you, if your butt's stuck in a fire, he can come get you. And he wants everybody here to understand that's important. And you all have to be able to do that. No matter how old you are, or what position you hold in this, in this, in this department, you should be, that's the one thing you should be able to do is get somebody out of a burning building. That's how the, the fire sled came uh, 
to be. And then I just got bored just doing the fire sled. So I needed a, a sidekick. So I made the Punisher because I like hitting stuff. Funny story about that is again, Lieutenant Willis. And if you don't know Lieutenant Willis, it wouldn't make sense to you, but he's a very stoic person uh, feared by the recruits. He was teaching the recruits to hit this new thing called the Punisher. And he told the one kid, you, you go ahead and strike the Punisher while I'm addressing the class so they can see what I'm talking about. So the kid, so he's standing there talking and all of a sudden he feels that he got hit in the back with something. And when he looks down, the red nine pound dead blow hammer is down by his feet. And he looked back and the kid's like terrified. He goes, did you hit me with that hammer? He goes, yes, sir. He goes, why did you do that? He goes, I didn't mean to, sir. But he said, show me how you did that. Well, here's what's happened. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a fact of life. So we've got all these new people coming into the fire service because now you see Chicago, you know, the shows, all these shows. And like I said, I had no expectations of the fire service, none. These other people now have all different kinds of expectations on the fire service, think it's glamorous when it's really not. They got out of high school. And like I told my son, go to college. So you can get a good job. Well, we, we get mad at the kids because they did what their parents said. They went straight from school to college. They didn't get a job like maybe you did or I did where we're out swinging hammers and digging ditches and doing manual labor. They did what their parents said. I went to college, got a degree, and now I need a job. And I can't get a job with the degree I got because the degree really doesn't do anything for me. But I got it. Well, fire service is hiring. <laughs> Go be a firefighter. So they get there and the point is they don't know how to use the tools and we get mad at them because of that. Well, actually what you have to do is you got to train them to do that. So from that point on, the Punisher went from being a piece of fitness equipment to a piece of training equipment that you can use for fitness equipment. And that's how a lot of people now are teaching their young firefighters how to strike. And, you know, it allows you to add weight or take weight off whatever your limitations are. That's how those two got. And then you should know a lot about the ladder mill because <laughs> you are you are very involved in that part of it. Yeah. I think because of you is why we got a, we 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 ended up doing ladder mills. Yeah. Did you need a test for your um your climbing team that was going to climb the Orlando Eye, which is now something different? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly that. You saw something that uh, nobody else did. I mean, because in my mind. Yeah, this is this is a piece of equipment that's out there. And any fire department could get it, but this the guy that built that specific ladder mill, he was I, you know the story better than me because you you partnered with him or something, right? Well, what what yeah, what happened was um when I was a safety and wellness chief, the I think you guys, I think it was, you came up with a thing that these, these people need to have some kind of a test. And, you know, I demanded a lot, you know, we had to do these safety things that were extensive, but, you know, it's, it was very hard to get me in a safety mindset because I wasn't a safety guy back in the old days. I was like, you know, kick the door down, let's go in. This is bullshit that you can't go into a burning building because, you know, you're worried that the roof's going to fall in, you know, that's our job. That was me. And you see people dying all over the country because that's how they're thinking. And you got to go, oh, man, let me rethink things. So in the safety position, I took that very seriously. 
Um, I didn't want anybody, any of our crew to get hurt. I didn't want any of our citizens not to be saved because our crews weren't ready to do the job. And one of the things that I truly believed in was when um, it was, I think, uh, Jose Vasquez and Rick Bacolo came into my office and said, you've got, we need a tower. You need to find us a tower and we're going to train on it. We're going to go up 200 feet and we're going to bring people down because this uh, thing that we're going to have to train on that the luck, and it was a great compliment because other countries were using specialized, if I'm, you tell me if I'm incorrect about this, but this story I heard, they were using specialized teams to rescue people. They would call them, not the fire departments. Our mayor said, no, our fire department can do that, which what a compliment, right? right. So this, this the eye is what, 475 feet in the air? 425 and okay. there really wasn't any structure that you could climb. That that. Yeah. No. And, you know, getting, and a lot of people don't understand that just like, you know, getting an acquired building to burn is not as easy as it used to be. It's, there's a lot of stuff you got to go through. So when they told me that I'm not other guys, um, and it's a bad story, but I truly remember where we used the tower across the street from headquarters and somebody froze 50 feet up in the air and had to be taken down. And, you know, if they go up 200 feet, we can't get the, we can't get the Quint to come get them. I mean, um, the Bronto to come get them. We, what are we going to do? You know? So I wasn't really in favor of that. And basically I said, and I made them very mad and they're both, I, I feel good friends of mine. I love both of those guys dearly, but I'm like, you know, hopefully this isn't, you've been training. This isn't the only high structure in Orange County, I'm pretty sure. So what kind of training have you been doing? And they did, they've been doing great training. And I understand what they wanted to do. I said, well, I tell you what. I said, until you prove you're physically fit enough to actually climb that high, I don't, that's as far as it's going to go. And they go, what do you mean? I said, you got, I want you to prove to me that, because that's hard, Dave. You know, that's hard. Yeah. That's a lot of climbing. You don't want somebody that, you know, because unfortunately in the fire service, a lot of people, when it's a new thing, and it's, it's just one of the things firefighters like to do is be part of something new, get that t-shirt, you know, be on that climbing team. And some of them, even good firefighters that can do a really good job firefighting, aren't built for climbing. They're just not. And I know that. Uh, so they said, well, so they came back and they had the same, and I'm sure you've heard of it, called the Jacob's Ladder. They said, well, we can do this. And I'm like... That's the back injury waiting to happen. I'm not a big fan. Not that it's not a good piece of equipment. I'm sure it is, um, but I'm not a fan. It doesn't really, you know, like the fire sled, like the Punisher, I feel those are very similar to realistic tasks that we, as similar as I can get it. So I'm happy with that, you know, I, and the, the Jacob's Ladder, I go, that's not the angle we climb. That's not the angle you're going to climb. So they said, okay. And they came back and they showed me this ladder mill thing. And I was giving them, I guess, a weird look. And they go, oh, you don't like that either? And I go, no, I, I really do like it. But I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know anything about this piece of equipment because that's kind of what I do. I called the people that make this ladder mill and I say, hey, um, Marm, Battalion Chief Rick Seegers, Morris County Fire Rescue, big shot, right? Well, we were thinking about buying your piece of equipment. Where can we, where can we see it and feel it? Because I don't buy anything without touching it. He goes, oh, Brooksville. I go, Brooksville Fire Department has one? 
and we don't have it? He goes, fire department? No, I never even thought about fire departments. He goes, it's a gym. So, you know, I, we got a group of people. You were one of them because you're the special ops chief. And then uh, who else went with Tony Willis and me? And was it, and did Bricola go? I believe it was Bricola because he's the one that, that found it online, I believe. It was either him or, or Jose that found him it. Him or Jose. Yeah, they found it. And so we made the, the road trip there and the guy was telling us some horrible, like how horrible it was. And you're looking at it going, it's a ladder, bro, that just keeps going. It's not, how bad can it be? We've climbed ladders our whole lives in other careers and in this career, it's a ladder. And uh, so he says, well, you know, you probably won't stay on there very long. I remember we all took a turn and I remember I took my turn and I'm like, this isn't too bad. And I said, after about a minute or so, I, I was like, let me get off. Cause I used the excuse that I had my uniform on. And I remember usually when you're working out, you, your heart rate will go up as you're working out and you start losing your breath. You have the talk test, right? If you can't breathe, if you can't talk, it's time to slow down if you're working. And as I'm talking to the guy, I'm losing my breath and my heart's going up. I'm like, what the hell? How did that happen? So I was sold. I'm like, man, that is perfect. Um, it's safe. You know, it can be done at uh, the pit pit. Uh, so I went and it wasn't a hard sell to Chief Droves. He said, that's what we do. Let's get it. Now, unfortunately, when we got that one, it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right climbing angle. So I had to repurpose it. And, you know, there was a lot of things that it was built. I don't know if you know this, but the guys that built that build the tread wall for climbers. And they built that just as a side project for climbers. So they basically it was straight up and then it was uh it went out at an angle so you had to climb like a climber climbing overhead and i knew right when we first had that people firefighters were trying to climb it like that and they were hanging and i was like oh it's gonna be shoulder injuries i'm gonna get in trouble for that so i got with the owner i said man we gotta do something with this i need a better climbing angle so you know we fixed it we invented something to make it a better climbing angle and then he told me one time after seeing what I was doing, he goes, why don't you just take care of the ladder mill because it's just a side project for us. And I can see that, you know, you got to handle this. So we took the ladder mill, we repurposed it. Now we have the fire slate edition ladder mill that has, it's red, of course, it's got a custom airbrush um, safety screen. It's got wheels so you can move it because the one that fit that you can't move. So everything you do with it has to be, you have to work it around. The scenario has got to work around the, the ladder mill instead of the ladder mill working in the scenario so we put a mobility package on there and some other bells and whistles and it's a little bit more uh, i guess evolved now for firefighters so but um it did its job because i think we came up with uh they had to do 500 feet in 10 minutes so when i first went in there the first day and there was bodies like a war zone all over the concrete floor to fit pit and i remember one guy goes yeah, Chief, you know, I think I'd just be a rigger. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think climbing's for me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And what really made, made me feel good that it worked was, um, I think it was Eli's. I guess he had like a really fast climbing time. And the team that had came there, and you probably know this because you were there, the team, the, the guys that were training said, man, we've never had a team that can climb this fast and this efficiently before. You guys are amazing. And they said, well, yeah, you got to see what we got to do to get on this stupid climbing team which, uh, you know, it's a feather in your cap because that's a, that's a good program. I just think it's amazing 
what what you've put together and what you're offering because because nobody else offers it and it's specific for the fire service and well it's a it's a i, I used to get um I used to get really upset with vendors i mean you know uh that would call me up and tell me you know they'd say hey uh, rick you know because i'd worked with vendors before you know after at the wellness program everybody's trying to sell you stuff now because we're, we're buying stuff for 40 some stations so everybody wants to get in on the action they call up and so one guy calls up he goes rick man I, I got a firefighter functional training piece for you and i'm like really and they go yeah i go come on oh meet me over at this gym it's at this gym so i drove all the way to the side of town i go in the gym i'm all excited because i'm like eat up with it. i'll buy them if i got money in my budget i'm already i'm already figuring out how can i get these things and uh i get in there and it's an art trainer that's painted red and yellow that i've used in all kind of gyms you know art trainers cybex art trainer good piece of equipment there's nothing wrong with them but they're not for they're not built for firefighters they're built for anybody and to me that it just pissed me off because i'm like you just insulted my entire not only me but my entire profession by saying that same thing i look up workouts trx workouts it's this firefighter trx workout i'm like oh man that's a pretty good workout and then i look and he goes this is a boxing workout it was the same workout it's the firefighters workout and i'm like i can't believe that nobody's come up with stuff for us we deserve it not that we're heroes not that we're better than anybody else but if you go to a middle school that has a football or soccer program, I can guarantee you they've got specialized equipment to play football or soccer, right? But we don't have anything. It just, that just didn't make sense to me. So unfortunately, the way things work with me is if, if you know, if I can't, and I'd much rather buy stuff than make stuff. I would much rather, because it's hard. I mean, developing this equipment, getting patents for it, changing stuff, manufacturing in the usa which the only place will is the only place we make our stuff is the united states of america we won't other people said why don't you make it in another country we can get a lot cheaper nope not doing that it's just hard to do it so i'd much rather just buy it from somebody else and then the next the next thing we're doing i told you a little bit about it is we do these these physical ability tests with 50 pound vest on because that's supposed to simulate the weight of our air pack and our gear but working out in a weight vest or doing tasks in a weight vest is not anywhere similar to doing one with an air pack on your back. You know, it could weigh 50 pounds, but if it doesn't have that offset, it's not the same. So we're making now, uh, it's a, like a cross between a weight vest and a air pack. So, and believe it or not, there's a lot of people excited about that and is already asking when they can get it. We're on our third or fourth prototype now, and I can't, I won't do it unless it's right for sure. That's the other really cool thing about all of your equipment that as it's evolved, because you, you make something or you put something at a fire station, firemen are, are going to figure out how to break it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, your stuff is like indestructible. <laughs> well, I'd like to say that, but we have had some, some, some um, destruction with it, but we fix it. Um, and we learn from that because, you know, you get, you get these big gigantic firemen now and 
I, there's one guy that I won't even mention his name, but he, he takes great pleasure in, in tearing my stuff up. And he'll say, oh man, I bent the bars on that. Cause you know, we started out with a fire sled. We, for the CrossFit guys, they love to push sleds. So we put this thing on the front of our, our fire sled that you could push. And in the beginning, it was just bars because I was trying to figure out which the right handle was. And my, my partner, who is, he's been in the fitness equipment industry for over 35 years. So it, it works out so well because I can take what I know about the task in firefighting and I can tell him my idea and he'll take my idea and he'll make it come alive. You know, I said, hey, this is what we need to do. So I said, oh, let's start like this. And then it became, and you know what the front of the fire sled looks like now? It looks like a yellow ladder. Well, Tony Willis one time goes, hey, chief, what is that, a ladder prop? And I said, uh, yeah, Tony, it's the shortest ladder in the history of the fire department. Sarcastic. And Tony goes, because he doesn't take jokes very well. <laughs> and he's like, huh. He goes, well, too bad because they won't let us take the ladders off the trucks to train with because they're at, it makes them out of service and it delays our response time. So it should have been nice if we had a ladder prop. Damn. So we made a ladder prop. And then it started out at 35 pounds. And then um, Jason Wheat said 35 pounds isn't heavy enough. It needs to be 65 pounds at least. So we made it 65 pounds. But so that's what we do, you know, especially now that I'm, you know, when I was entrenched in the fire service, I mean, I felt in tuned and wired and I felt like I was the best person to demonstrate and show and explain. But now that I'm out of it, I realize my time is gone. And these guys that have, they use it uh, every day for recruits and stuff. They're really good at the stuff. So we take their advice. So there's a lot of stuff like on John Sabbath, you know, John Sabbath, the straps on the back, he, and he made those. So they're Sabbath straps on the top of the ceiling breach thing. It used to be just a round like knob and, uh, people weren't getting what they were doing. We were, I would say, why are you doing that? You can't breach a ceiling like that. This is how you do it. And I'd show them. I watched Tony Willis at the Mark and Todd um, uh, honor ch uh, challenge one time with a pipe pole next to the people to get them understanding. And as soon as they did, they went into the proper position. So we put a Willis hook on the top. And then there's a Jake Jason's ladder because instead of 35 pounds, it's 65 pounds. There's the DOS ladder hanger because Doss says we need a ladder hanger. So, you know, we listen to the, and we go to places and firefighters say, Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Some things we can, some things we don't want to, because it's more work and it costs us more money. But if it's a good idea, we eventually do it. So, you know, so we do listen to the people that use our equipment because if not, you know, why would they use it? It's not what they're doing. One thing that we kind of skimmed over and, and I don't think that it was really really clear um we didn't actually talk about it specifically but i'm i was always curious like uh, working out with you at the fit pit you were always you know and and nice workout clothes and after the workout and you were going to work it's like spit shined starch uniform squared away you had a way of making sure things were very organized. You're somewhat of a perfectionist. Yes, and... I've been called that. <laughs> and I've been called uh, Sheldon and the Rain Man. <laughs> where, where does that come from? And not only that, but how has that been a challenge for you 
when you're leading people? Well, if you are somewhat of a control freak and, and, uh, and a perfectionist, um, it's hard to let go and let other people do stuff for you. And when, when, you, when you don't do that, what you're basically telling the people that work with you, and I never like to say for you because truly everything we do in the fire service, whether you're on shift or in those headquarters, is, it's a team thing. I mean, if, if you're if you're in a good environment, everybody's working for the same goals. So, you know, you start realizing like I used to love I used to love challenges. I still do. I used to love it when you would give me some responsibility, like when Mark Richardson would say, hey, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of that. I took it seriously. I wanted to do the best I could. It made me feel like a valued member of the team, not just some somebody that was getting paid to come to work every day, which made me feel like that's not what I'm doing. They need me to be there. You know, I, I don't want to call in sick because if I'm not there, you know, something might happen. They might need my skill set. So after sitting back and thinking, man, you know, you always want to treat people like you want to be treated, right? So yeah, it was hard. It was hard to, to let go some things, especially on that wellness program, because I remember that was my baby. I started that from the very beginning, the inception, the conception, everything was was stemming from me not that i did everything not that i'm responsible for everything because i'm surely responsible for little or nothing but i could give people seeds and ideas and they would take that and because they were the same kind of people that they wanted to do good things you know it all just came together but it's a challenge to to do that and 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 it's disappointing it's very disappointing when you give people uh a project because when you are a control freak or a perfectionist or whatever you call them, you, you're really disappointed when they don't do as well as you know they could do. Now, if they did, if they stumbled because they don't have, you didn't give them the right tools or the right instructions or they weren't quite ready for that, that's on you. you that's your responsibility to make sure that they're set up for success. But if you've given them all that and you've put your, trust in them and they let you down that's a hard one that's when it's kind of hard to you know it's kind of like watching football and they, the quarterback throws a pass Brady throws a pass to somebody they drop the pass you're like oh shoot you're never gonna throw the pass to him again no he throws it right back to him to give him that confidence if he keeps dropping him you never see him again and that's kind of how all this kind of stuff well, i don't care who you are you know if you give people your trust too many times and they disappoint you then you're probably not going to have them on your team too long probably going to give them some transfer paperwork and say, I think you'd be better over at this station because they really need you over there. But once you do that, and once you see them with the same passion and the fire and they come back and they're like, and you're going, Oh man, I never even thought about that. That's a great idea. You know, and you just see people so excited about that project to where now it's not your project anymore, which gives you the ability to move on to that next project and to get that thing started. So basically it's, you know, it's like planting seeds, and, you know, if you give the right nutrition and water and stuff, it's going to grow into be something that's fruitful. These projects are the same way. And, you know, I don't know, I think maybe from my dad, because my dad would build stuff and he always made me come out and help him. But he was always had everything set to do something correctly. And it was all set to where he would be successful. And I think you just watch that for a while and you realize 
as a kid, you don't do that in the beginning because you're like, ah, I just got to do this, this, and this. And like, why, why is nothing working for me? And then when you get older, you're like, hey, maybe if I do it the right way, things will be successful. So I just found, I mean, I don't know why. I don't even know how. And, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I don't have a lot of education, but I do like problem solving. It's just like when, you know, that we were dropping five-inch hose off the engines and it was every other day and it was damaging people's cars and other things. You know, I felt a lot of pride when Chief Lyons came out to me and Mark Richardson said, hey, I'm going to give you guys this pad and this car and you go to every engine and you figure out why the, the hose is falling off. Now, we figured it out after the second engine. That's, I don't know if you remember when we made those uh, straps that you that we put in there and it was a very simple idea. It wasn't nothing special, but we never had an engine and I still have a letter. I'm very proud of it. Never had an engine after that that dropped any hose since they had those straps. So. I don't know what it is. It's just uh, having an eye for certain things and and seeing things and going, what we need that. Why, if I can't get it, let's see if we can make it. And it's 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 bankrupting my company. It's not a good thing because keep spending money on other things. <laughs> well, the the reason I was asking that question because um, I saw you get frustrated with individuals, and they would get frustrated with you mm -hmm. because. It was, it, it needed to be right. There's, there's no sense of doing it. If you're not going to do it right, just I'll do it, you right. know? And that can be frustrating, especially if you have standards that maybe some people might feel are unrealistic. We know that they're not, but to some, it's almost like you got to build them up and you always did that. But there was always like, I remember seeing you at the fit pit with, with, it was a couple of different guys, but there would be not, not like a clash, but there was um, friction and somehow you always navigated it and it worked out and there was no, there was no love loss. There was no, it wasn't a disrespect thing. It was, I don't know. I just found it very interesting how you were able to get people to really achieve uh, a level that, you know, that initially they didn't see the value in mm -hmm. and then they did. And, and you, you, you kind of have to explain to them, you know, you have to give them, Sometimes you have to give them descriptions of why things are important. Because sometimes if you give people just a task to do, it's just a task to do. Now, you might know why that task is important. I'll give you a perfect example. This may mean nothing to anybody else, um, but it may ring true with a lot of people. I don't know. I just know me. So at the Fitbit, you know, I was proud of that gym. It was a nice gym. We got a guy to take care, you know, to be off duty, you know, to, to staff the gym and to take care of the gym. I wanted the gym set up a certain way and I would listen to you about it. But in my mind, if I knew my way was going to work better, that's the way we were going to have to go because in my mind, I had it all planned out already. Now, if you could, you could change my mind, you know, and, and some, and I would listen, but for instance, so the weights, this sounds stupid, Dave, but the weights, they all have a spot on each side of a rack, right? 
So the fives go here, the tens go here, the quarters go here, the 45s go here. Now, if I put a certain weight where it's not supposed to go, that means I have to pull off two or three weights just to get to the weight I want to go to. To me, that was a big deal. To, to you, it may not have been a big deal, but to me, it was a big deal because in my mind, what I've always understood about everything is if you, if you give people a barricade at all not to do this, it's easier for them to go, oh man, I ain't going through all that. I just won't do it. So, you know, that was important to me. So I would get mad a couple of times and say, man, can't you put the weights, you know, do I got to put like numbers on there? I mean, you know, the like the dumbbells, one time I threw all the dumbbells off the racks because they weren't in the right sequential order. I said, do I need to put the dumbbells? Because if you're trying to be efficient, you need to know where all those are going to be. You don't need to mess around with them. Now, when I get there, my brain works where I got to fix all the dumbbells before I can work out. So you're taking time away from my workout because I only have a certain amount of time in the morning, but it's like that with everything. So what you do at first is you're like, would you fix that, please? Could you do that for me? I appreciate it. And if they, if they keep doing it wrong, then you might get frustrated. Like you see me get frustrated. And I don't know which instance you're talking about because I do get frustrated, you know, with people. And then I will take them in and I'll explain to them exactly why I want it a certain way. And normally that's all, that's the most important part. If you tell people why it's a value to them, they appreciate that you've took the time because you don't, when you get to a certain level, you don't have to do that. You should, but you don't have to. And I know a lot of supervisors that don't, don't agree with that. But in my mind, I would do any, if you were my supervisor, I would do anything for you if I understood what it was. If you just told me why, I mean, I was going to try to do the best I could anyway, because that's just how I am. But if you told me why, then you're probably going to get a, a lot better product than you even asked for. So, you know, I would, I would ask people nicely. I would probably curse and then, and then I would explain. And sometimes it would go different ways, but, you know, I, and I hope I didn't, I, I, my intention was never to make anybody feel bad are to be disrespectful because I think everybody should respect it from the brand new firefighter all the way up to the top uh, of the level. Uh, no, I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think I ever saw you being disrespectful. It was, I mean, you, the fit pit did not become what it became because you were lackadaisical about how you wanted things. It was, you saw how it could be, and that's what it was. And it became probably one of the most popular places. You know, people could go work out at the station, but people were going there. Yeah, it was a it was a it was what it was supposed to be. It was a very uh, motivating, good environment, and it gave you the ability to do whatever kind of workouts you want to do. If you wanted to use the cardio equipment, selectorized equipment, if that was your thing, do it. Then you had, uh, you know, Bull was teaching the CrossFit stuff over there. So if you want to do deadlifts and squats and, and, you know, he would teach you to do it safely. So I never had to worry about people getting hurt. And then they had, you know, the functional equipment like the fire sled, the punisher, the ladder mill. So if you just want to do functional workouts, you could do that. Uh, and that's, that was the whole idea. Plus, you know, I think the big deal was letting letting family, letting spouses come in there and, and work out with you. Because if you 
if your wife can go to the gym with you or your husband can go to you or your significant other can go to you, it's they might be the one that says hey let's go to the fit pit today i don't really feel like it well i want to go so that might get you in there what i really enjoyed was having and it was scary in the beginning was having the the police and letting law enforcement let military but you know we talk about all these people we respect but we have something we need to share that with them and show them that we respect them. And I truly believe that after that, the firefighters that were down there working out with the police had a great relationship with them. And if they saw them on scene, they were treated a little bit differently. If we had to do, you know, the command, the unified command, where a lot of times, you know, you've gone through the class, you've taught the class, you've been out there and you've tried to set up unified command, but Maybe somebody on the other agencies don't feel it's as necessary, but it's ingrained in us. Um, they just give you that, you know, well, we think it's stupid, but we'll do it, Rick. You know, I, I was proud that we could do all that um, with just a simple warehouse with some, some all odds and ends of stuff we got out of like the downtown warehouses and stuff because we didn't really have a budget for that. You know, they just didn't. We had to find stuff. Now, I, I guess the point that I was trying to make is that, like, I never saw you grab your brass or anything. It was never, you never threw around position power. It, it, it didn't matter what the other person's rank was either. You spoke to them, you know, this is man to man. I'm asking you to do this because this, I'm responsible for this. And right. This is, this is the standard that we're going to hold here. And right. everybody that worked down there worked very hard at making that place really good. Because, you know, they, it was them. They wanted it. I mean, some people don't know what they want. But when they see it and, they make, and it makes them proud, then they want it even more. And, you know, I, of course, I'm not going to throw my rank out. That's, that's insecurities. And we won't even get into that. And... And you learn from people that you work with, Dave, you work with some great supervisors, leaders, whatever you want to call them. And then you work with some poor ones and they're not leaders. They just took a test. They got a position, they abused the position and you won't do anything for them that you don't have to. And if you see them out in a bar or if you see them in a, in a restaurant or a store, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to waste your time talking to them. And I always thought, I never want, you know, I, this, this is just a uniform you put in when you come to work. I truly believe that everybody that works for Orange County Fire Department or any fire department want to do good things. They just need some direction and some explanation of why to do them. Why do I need to tell them what I am? They can see what I am. And there's been people telling me before, you know, I'm not going to do that. And then they learned they were going to do that, you know, and it didn't have to be because I'm the chief, but, you know, it's. There's, there's expectation and you have to do certain things. And if you let people not do that, then what do you, what do you got? You know, nobody's going to respect you. And remember, I came from ironworking construction backgrounds. When you were on those scenes with all these big monstrous, you know, hardworking, rough people, there was no rank with that. If you were in charge of getting something done, you had to convey a way to get it done to where they understood I'm not messing around. And you, you learn to smile and make sure people understand I'm smiling, but I'm not really happy and it's going to get done. And I'm not talking about a physical threatening force. Yeah. I'm just talking about understanding that, you know, 
there is no, it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. The good thing is, is when you have, when you're in the, the right environment, you can explain to people why when you're in a, an environment where it's, you don't have that opportunity, you want those people to understand. I know that he's doing this for a reason and he wouldn't have me do it if it wasn't for a reason. And I think everybody will say, I would welcome you to come into my office or I would come to your station if you had any questions of why we did anything on the fire scene. And I would explain to you, maybe it wasn't right. Maybe it wasn't the best way to do it. But if you told me, I had plenty of lieutenants taught me all kinds of stuff. Talk about mentoring or mentors. You know, I, I've had people, doesn't matter what rank you are. There's some people with like some really good skill sets in Orange County that if you just take the time to listen to them, they're going to make you a very good supervisor and a very good command officer because you're like, damn, I never even thought about that, man. That's freaking awesome. But if you don't give them that feeling, that ability that you're going to share stuff with them, that makes them want to share stuff with you. It's just about being respectful to people and, and honestly wanting to do and wanting them to do the best they can. I think that, yeah, because I was, I was thinking about this today, you know, thinking about what we were going to talk about tonight. And and that's always been one of those things where it, it was just like this, uh, I don't know, like a presence about you that you could, I guess it was just like these relationship, relationships that you had fostered with people that were of every rank. I, I, I do think that it helped that I went, and there's nothing wrong. I'm not, this is not criticism. It's just uh, observations, because that's what I like to do is observe and try to learn and you know, like I said, you, you got some supervisors are great. You're like, man, I want to do that when I, if I'm ever in that position, that's how I want to handle that. Then you got other ones that you're like going, I would never talk to anybody like that or treat anybody like that ever. I don't care who they are, you know, because at the end of the day, we're all people. Some might not know what your background is. You know, you might've come from a background where you don't really talk to people like that. You know, I, I always found it odd that you would have some supervisors that would talk and, and I would, some people, and I will have to say, I mean, I honestly, I was thinking about this. I was treated so well my whole career by almost everybody I worked for or worked with. I was, I just never had anybody that treated me any other way, but a really good way. And um, I do think that it helped, you know, helped when I got where I was going because I started from the bottom. And I started in the district days where, you know, we didn't have air conditioning. You know, there's all these stories that people would want to hear. Worked at the schoolhouse where it was haunted, you know, with different people. And then you just climb up the ladder. I don't skip any ranks. You know, I didn't get any shortcuts. There's, you know, I didn't get anything because somebody, you know, gave me something because they liked me. You know, it was, uh, I think people understood that I earned, earned my spots. And, you know, going into the safety position was a hard, that was a, you know, in the beginning, that was a hard position. You know, a lot of people don't understand how hard those safety captains had it because um, nobody liked them because it's, it's always funny to me how people reacted to you trying to keep them from getting hurt. Like I remember, I don't know if you remember the turtle show helmets with a big, you know, helmet. It's kind of like this one right here. Got one right here, just in case I needed it. Um, but I would be on a extrication and, I'd be excited because I got the, you know, the, the spreaders or the cutters and I'm excited because I got them and I'm going to be able to use them. 
and I would forget to put my face shield down. And all of a sudden, a lieutenant would come by and slap it down. Now, because of that, you want to throw the tool down and you know go to throwing hands, and then you're working and you start thinking as you're working, why would they do that? And you're like, wow, that guy might have saved my eyes. <laughs> you know, I can't work without eyes. And then I think about Rick Brock being blinded and, you know, it all just comes together. Like what, why don't people want to be as safe as they can be? So since I went through engineer, lieutenant, the uh, safety captain, then battalion chief, you know, that was a great, that was a great learning curve. Cause you, you went through the whole, you had the whole County you had to cover and you had to deal with a lot of different people. One time uh, I was called out as a safety captain. And I knew it was just because they were mad because we had safety captains. And the complaint was when they washed the, washed the rims of the engine, sometimes they would cut their finger and they wanted something done. And so I'm like, you know, I could have said, yeah, you know, you're an idiot. Why'd you call me out here, blah, blah, blah. But I said, well, you know, let's, let's figure it out. I said, they make these things called truck brushes. And I'm going to put that in my call out that I think that everybody should use a truck brush. Well, I like to use a sponge. I said, well, from now on, you're going to use a truck brush. And if you cut yourself doing that in my call out, so you probably won't get a workman's comp claim out of that. And the guy just shook his head like, man, it didn't work out like I wanted to work out. But, you know, yeah. you, you just you just learn from all these positions and from different people. But, you know, I think, like I said, people want to be successful and they don't need you to tell them that you're a lieutenant or a battalion chief or an assistant chief or the chief. You know, if they don't know, then they're not smart enough to be in the fire service. I don't know, Dave. I don't know why people like uh, have been very kind and usually do what I ask them to do. And it's just the way it's been my career. Although I would beat them to a pulp if they gave me any problem. No, <laughs> I, I know that there are there, there's chief officers out there that that watch this podcast. If anybody out there listening is interested in, in checking out your equipment, I mean, I have your number, but how would somebody get in touch with you to be able to get a demo or something like that? Well, you just go on uh, firesledfitness.com. And, you know, I, I encourage anybody that's remotely interested in, in the equipment to go on that website. We put a lot of work into it and it's, it's, it's got a nice presence now. It took us a while. There's an about, about us page that will tell you a lot about, you know, which you don't need to know because you've already heard me talk more than enough. And then, but you can learn about my partner and what he has to offer and all the different team members because we do have uh, some really good guys that work for Orange County, uh, Jason Wheat, um, Doss Bozeman and Chris Hoffman that work on our team and deliver some really good um, products. And, uh, you know, we've just developed this fire ground physical ability test it's, that is uh, validated now. So we're ready to kick that out at Alachua County here coming up in a couple months. So we have an injury prevention program that's, that's coming up. We're getting it um, CEs uh, certified on that one. I mean, we do, we do a lot of different things, but like you said, there's a lot of holes in what the fire department needs. And some of these things people can get, but it's really hard for them to get it really, they make it very difficult to get some of this stuff, you know, like testing is normally a very expensive process. Ours is not that expensive and it can be done in an apparatus bay. You don't have to have a whole warehouse. You can 
you could set it up and probably first time it probably take you an hour, the second time 30 minutes. And then when you're done, you can take it all down and put it in a corner and be ready for the next one. So we're doing a lot of stuff, Dave. And trying to have time to do paddle boarding at the same time. I built myself a, a nice beach cruiser. So when it warms up a little bit, actually, it's been beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous today. Come out and uh, cruise down the beach with you. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Come on. I'm right across the street. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me about everything. And it's really cool to hear your stories and, and to really get the background of of how all of this came about. I mean, it's, uh, man, personally, I think fire sled fitness is going to go down in the history books, you know, like say, like everybody knows the story about the, the Halligan and, you know, right. the, the pike pole and, you know, where all that stuff comes from. So I, I think that the, the natural evolution of the fire service, there, there was going to be some job specific fitness equipment and and here you are you're the you're the guy well i, I appreciate that and we're i mean I'm, I'm not gonna lie we're very proud of the equipment and it, and it took us a very long time to get to where we 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 feel it's it's where it needs to be i'm never 100 percent satisfied never ever but it gets to the point where you got to quit changing things and we're we're to that point so now i'm ready to move to uh, another project to build some more different stuff. But, you know, I will say this, and I hope it doesn't sound like a sales pitch, but everything that are killing firefighters can be maybe not completely prevented, but it can prevent a lot of these things that kill us by just doing physical activities. It took me a long time to understand, and it's still hard because, you know, the fire service, that's a hard shift to turn. Um, and we're still trying to turn it and not try not to hurt anybody's feelings or step on anybody's toes with it. But you can't buy a bunch of equipment that intimidates your crews and expect them to embrace that. I know from experience, because we had an incredible wellness program at Orange County, I feel, and it was very, uh, very well defended by our fire chief. And something, some words, so there are some words in the, in the vocabulary I don't understand, like same difference. I hear people say that all the time. I don't understand what that means to this day, and I've heard it my whole life. In the wellness program, it was, the wellness program was built on, um, it's mandatory non-punitive. I'm sorry, those two words don't go together for me. If it's mandatory and you don't do something, how is it not going to be punitive? If I tell you to go out and do a dead, deadlift and you say, I don't want to do it, I can't make you do that deadlift. If I do and you get hurt, then risk management is going to shut my program down. But with what we're trying to do is instead of looking at it as working out, it's training. So if I tell you, Dave, we're going to go out and do squats and deadlifts and lunges and we're going to do some box jumps and some wall balls, you probably tell me to you know stick it up my you know what. Um, you're not doing that on shift and I can't make you. And I surely couldn't. If I tell you, hey, Dave, we're going to uh, simulate a five-story building fire today and we're going to start in athletic gear and we're going to use this equipment to do that because now I, we're going to simulate uh, advancing charge hose line. We're going to uh, simulate carrying a ladder. We're going to simulate breaching the ceiling. 
pulling a down firefighter out of a building, climbing up to the fifth story to check because the RIT team's not in place yet. So you might have to make a pull from the outside and the door is, is, is breached. Our door is locked, secured. We need to get in there. Can you tell me, because that's training, right? Yeah, Can you tell me I'm not going to, I have never been able, and never I would I say I'm not going to do training, but people all the time say I'm not going to work out because my back hurts or my shoulder hurts or something like that. But there's different ways to get the same result as what I'm trying to say. So I can still make you active. I can build your, your cardio system up. I can build your legs up. I can build your up. I can build everything I need you to do. And I don't need you to be a, a big superhero. I just need you to do certain tasks at a fire scene when I tell you to do them. That's all, that's all that we're trying to do. Build something that fire departments can use for a variety of different things. You know, I mean, this... I'm very proud because um, just yesterday, unfortunately, brought back some really horrible memories for me and probably for you. It's the 32 year anniversary. I think that Mark and Todd got killed in um, the fire. I think February 24th, 1989 is when it, when it happened. And they used the fire sled and the Punisher to reenact and do uh, an honor challenge to honor those two firefighters, which makes me feel incredibly proud that they would use my equipment or our equipment to do that. So it's, it's just, it's, it's a good feeling to know that we're doing some good in the fire service. You definitely are. And I, I really, uh, I really appreciate you agreeing to, to come on and talk with me. And I, I feel like this was a pretty good conversation. How do you feel? Even if you don't air this, David, I enjoy talking to you. So, you know, don't, don't air. It won't hurt my feelings if I've rambled on and there's nothing good that come out of this, but uh, it was great. It was just great to catch up and talk to you. I haven't seen you in a while. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.